Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy D. Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church NYC. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the Hastings Center, where he explores the inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies, along with professional burnout. He is also a regular contributor to Christianity Today. For more information, please visit his website at samdkim.com. We're going to practice a moment of silence and solitude to center ourselves before Stu comes and gives us the word today. The rule of life to center our lives in the presence of God. So let's spend a moment. exhale all the automatic ruminating thoughts that are weighing heavy on you this season and give it to the Lord and inhale the transcending presence of God and the promise that when we supplicate the tension, the questions, the doubts, and the anxieties that don't make sense. Although we might not get an answer, God's presence and peace will accompany. Sarah Young, April 23rd. Keep your eyes on me. Not only for direction, but also for empowerment. I never lead you to do something without equipping you for the task. That is why it's important to seek my will in everything you do. There are many burned out Christians who think more is always better, who deem it is unspiritual to say no. In order to know my will, you must spend time with me, enjoying my presence. This is not a difficult task, but a delightful privilege. I will show you the path of life. In my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. All God's people pray. Amen. Now our brother Sue comes up. Okay. Give me just one moment to set myself up here. You know, it's funny how devotionals work sometimes because sometimes they just line up with something so amazingly. Um, Doc and I did not collaborate on that devotional at all with this message, but it happens to line up very, very well, and it's very important to follow God's will for our lives. But anyway, let me get started on this. How many of you guys would consider yourself a goal-oriented person? You find yourself driven by the results that you want. You set a plan and you work towards it. Maybe you have, what do they call it, mamba mentality, where you do not accept failure. You will do everything to make sure you achieve what you want. Let's put that picture up. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's a workout routine. 
Maybe it's a passion project or some kind of an accolade that you want to achieve for yourself. You set that goal and you work for it. Maybe it's something as simple as you're planning a vacation, but you don't just plan a vacation. You make sure that you find the right credit card that gets you the right amount of points from a balance transfer that gets you a free airline trip to wherever you're going and you get the airline upgrade and you've already got your Disney Genie Plus Pass ready to go. So you've got your entire day at Disney planned out. You don't leave anything to chance. All right, maybe that's a little bit overboard for a vacation, but you have those goals that you work for, that 4.0 at school, that accolade at your job, that bonus at the end of the year. You make it almost like a personal thing where you say, I can get this done. This is who I am. I get things done because I am capable and that's who I am. To a point where maybe we start to let our identity be found in our goals and how well we achieve them. And I'm never gonna say anything bad about setting goals and working towards them. But when you start to set your identity on goals, what happens when they fall through? What happens when you set a goal and no matter how hard you work at it, it just doesn't work out? Do you start to get depressed? Do you start to get anxious? Do you start to get angry? If we start to set goals and they fall through and we start to feel some of these emotions, these are kind of like a signpost that say maybe we're finding a little bit too much of our identity in our goals and how we achieve them and how much stock we put in our identity and how we achieve them. It's a bit of a recipe for disaster because as good as we all are, sometimes we're not capable of achieving goals just on our own strength. Sometimes goals are a little bit beyond our ability to make it happen for ourselves. Sometimes these things that we call goals are really more desires. And believe it or not, there's a very important distinction between goals and desires that we'll go into in a little bit. But even more than that, sometimes the goals that we set for ourselves are not the goals that God has for us. It might not be the things that we think are going to make an important difference in our life, the things that we think are the foundation of our identity in life, they might not be part of God's plans for us. And believe it or not, there are times when God will actually even oppose those goals that we set for ourselves if they're not in accordance with his plans. Now, I know what you're saying. Still, we just read that scripture and it said, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Well, yeah. I do want to affirm that God has plans for us. He does have a hope and a future for us. And again, at no point do I want to say goals are a bad thing. At no point do I want to say you should not shoot for your goals and desires, that you shouldn't work hard for them. But what I am saying is when God says he plans to prosper us, what does that prospering look like? Does it look like what we want? Does it look like what God wants? Is there a difference between the two of those things? And if we're basing our identity on what we think prospering looks like, what is, what, where does that lead us when it's not what God says will prosper us, when God believes will prosper us, what God's goals for us are? Today, I wanna to talk about the dangers of finding our identity in achieving our goals. And again, goals are not a bad thing, but finding our identity in them when we already have an identity as a new creation in Christ, 
that can be a dangerous thing, especially if those goals aren't in line with what God's goals for us are. So that's what we're gonna break down today, kind of the dangers of finding our identities in our goals and our desires. And I've mentioned before over the last couple of times that I've been up here, when we find our new identity in Christ, I've been referencing uh, Neil Anderson's book, Victory Over the Darkness. And it's a phenomenal book, I'm still reading it. It's a great book, I highly recommend it to everybody here because it breaks down so many different things about our identity in Christ, what we find our identity in, and some of the pitfalls where we can lose our identity in the world rather than find it in Christ. And he spends a little bit of time talking about when we have goals, even well-intentioned goals that don't line up with God's goal for our lives. He says that there are three emotional responses that we can fall into depression, anxiety, and anger. And we actually see this happening with different figures in the Bible. We see that they had their goals, we see that they were setting their identity in these goals, and they fell into these different emotional responses when they saw that their goals were not being met. So I wanna go through them a little bit. Henry is gonna hate me because we have so much scripture to go through, but it's gonna be really quick tonight, so don't worry about it. We're gonna start off with um, Matthew chapter 16. Blocked goals lead to anger. Blocked goals are when you find yourself with a lack of control over a situation, whether it's a situation, whether it's a person, there is something that is blocking your control over a situation and preventing you from reaching a goal. And in Matthew 16, we find an exchange between Jesus and Peter of all people that illustrates this very, very well. So reading from verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, in this passage, you have to remember that many of the disciples had a particular view of who Jesus was. They thought that the Messiah, they knew he was the Messiah, but they thought he was going to be a Messiah that would make Israel great again, that was going to liberate Israel from Roman rule and was going to rule over them as king. And what happens when you're friends with the person who becomes king? You become somebody important. You become somebody in power. So we see that Peter actually has a little bit of a goal to be someone important, to be someone in power, to be someone of status. And in fact, many of the disciples would argue amongst each other who was the greatest of them, who was the best, who was this, the top one, who was going to sit at Jesus' left hand and his right hand. Two of them even asked their mom to say, hey, can you put my sons at your left and your right hand when you come to power? Who goes to their kid's boss and says, can you set my son up with that kind of a position? That's what some of the disciples thought of. That's some of the goals that they had. But when Peter hears from Jesus that Jesus' plan, that God's plan, is something significantly different, he reacts to it. He reacts and gets angry. He rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine the chutzpah, the gall on this guy to rebuke Jesus because his goals aren't being met. And Jesus says, you do not have the concerns of God in mind, but merely human concerns. 
this revealed a lot of what Peter's goal was and what he was staking his identity on, and it wasn't in line with God's plan. So again, blocked goals lead to anger. Let's go to the next one. Next, we see that anxieties, or rather uncertain goals, lead to anxiety. When you live in the ambivalence of what might happen with your goals. And we see here in Luke 10, this is another very well-known passage where Jesus had gone to the home of Mary and Martha. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha is worried about preparing everything. We go to verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, when the Lord says, you are worried and upset, some translations flat out say, you are anxious about many things. You are upset about these things. Because for Martha, she had a goal of preparing this perfect spread for Jesus. She wanted to be a perfect host. And Mary was just not helping her, not blocking her but just not contributing anything to it. So Martha's goal of having this perfect spread for Jesus is in uncertainty, and she's upset about it, she's nervous about it, she's anxious about it. Now, was her identity really going to be found for all time in the person who made the perfect spread for Jesus and the disciples? Absolutely not, but she hadn't processed that out. She hadn't thought that far out of it yet. All she had was her goal and her identity being set in that goal of preparing a place for Jesus. Again, doesn't sound like a bad idea, right? Doesn't sound like a bad goal to have, but it wasn't the most important thing in that moment. And when Jesus says, um, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried about and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will be not be taken away from her. It's not written here, but I'm willing to bet the next thing Jesus said was, why don't you sit here as well? Why don't you share in this moment as well? God wanted something better for her than the anxiousness of trying to see if this was the perfect spread for Jesus, the perfect welcoming for him. So that's anxiety in uncertain goals where we don't know where it's going to turn out. Let's go to the last one that uh, Neil Anderson talks about. We see that impossible goals lead to depression. When we think that a goal is unattainable, it's just simply impossible. We set the bar way too high for ourselves. For whatever reason, it's just not obtainable. We fall into depression. And we see this in Matthew 19, the, uh, the story of the rich young man. He came to Jesus and he wanted to know, how do I attain eternal life? And Jesus gives him some basic pointers and then it continues on here. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this depression that the young man goes through, it's not actually because it was impossible for him to give up his riches. We see many figures in the Bible give up great amounts of wealth. We see Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, gives away half of his possessions and then some to restitution to make right because he had sinned, because he did wrong, and he was willing to give it up to be right with the Lord. But for this young man, he couldn't reconcile his identity as a rich young man with the goal he had of attaining eternal life. He didn't see how it was possible without giving up some of that identity, without compromising that goal that he had, even though it would have meant having eternal life with Christ. So that's impossible goals that lead to depression. And I've honestly got experience with all three of these. I'm sure most of us have experience with all three of these things. Um, for example, the anxiety of an uncertain goal. How many of you guys have gone into a job interview before? And you go in there and you know that you're, you're good for the job, you have all of your ducks in a row, you're ready to rock this interview. But at the same time, you know there's a possibility that even if I rock this interview, even if I impress every single person here, I just may not be the right person for this job. I may not be the person that they're looking for. I've had plenty of job interviews, promotion interviews, where I have sat outside of that interview hall just completely and utterly nervous. I had a major come to me one time and say, hey, relax, it's not the end of the world, don't worry about it. I did get that job though, on the second try. Um, I know the depression that can come from what seems like an impossible goal. I've mentioned it a, a couple of times when I was reaching out to a family member to try to lead them to Christ. They were going through a difficult time in their life and I did everything that I knew how to do. I did all the prayers, I did all the, the reasoning, I did the whole nine yards, I did the whole, don't you want that for our life with Christ? And it just didn't work. And I got depressed because I knew the trajectory that that person was on was gonna affect them and it was gonna affect his whole family and his kids. And it was not a pretty sight. And I got depressed because how did I screw this up? How did I fail at this? It seemed impossible, but in the end, it took realizing that sometimes we can only go so far and we have to let God do the rest of the heavy lifting in those. And I couldn't find my identity as someone who failed to lead this person to Christ. I could only find my identity as someone who took the steps in faith and did all that I could in that moment. And I know the anger of a block goal. Back when I was in grad school, I was taking a class with Henry and we were supposed to be doing a project together. And me, I had trauma because I thought I was a lousy undergrad student. So I had the goal of acing this class and acing every single class. And Henry was just very, it's all good. Very nonchalant about everything like that. And it was just down the street on 19th Street at uh, the Starbucks over there. It's like a week before the project is due and I am losing my marbles to the point where Nathan, who was only like four or five years old at the time, he comes up alongside of me and he's joking and mocking me because like I am just losing my marbles and he's making fun of me and I completely didn't even see it. At that moment, I saw Henry as blocking my goal. And to be God's honest truth, that was stupid of me as all heck. 
And I honestly let my goal and my fear of my identity being in a failure as a student almost wreck a, a lifelong friendship with Henry. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm dead, I'm dead, you know what, serious. I was stupid on that. This is what happens when we find our identity in our goals. We end up hurting people. We end up hurting ourselves. We end up missing the better things. I would take a fail in that class every day to make sure I still have a friendship with Henry. Still got an A minus in it though. <laughs> but anyway, maybe some of these things strike a chord with you guys. Maybe some of these things you know, ring true to you guys. There are places in your life where you've set goals for yourself, but you're letting your identity rest in these goals. There's something more to it than just letting our identity rest in these goals. Let me go to this quote from uh, Neil Anderson, because he, he breaks it down very, very interestingly, something that I, I think we should you know, be aware of. To be successful, we have to distinguish between a godly goal and a godly desire. This liberating distinction can spell the difference between success and failure, between inner peace and inner turmoil. A godly goal is any specific orientation that reflects God's purpose for our lives and is not dependent on people or circumstances beyond our ability to control. A godly desire is any result that depends on the cooperation of other people, the success of events or favorable circumstances that we have no right or ability to control. We cannot base our success or sense of worth on our desires, no matter how godly they may be, because we cannot control all of the circumstances and people necessary to fulfill them. In most of those examples I gave you, those would fall under the category of desires, because I can't control every single one of those things. How foolish would it be to set my identity on things that I cannot control, right? And that is the danger that we fall into when we start to set our identity on our goals, when we start to believe our worth is based on how well we achieve our goals. It's something that I think anyone, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, can you know, really use to learn, to really use to understand. And this is my first point that I want to uh, put up here today. Your identity cannot be based on your goals or your desires. It just can't be. Because our goals, our desires, are contingent on other things. We can't set our identity on something that is, that is fickle, something that is contingent on other things. Instead, we can set our identity on Christ. We can set our identity on who he's called us to be, who he knows us to be, who he created us to be. And we need to realize that our goals, as good as they may be sometimes, they need to be aligned to God. So, because we're a new creation in Christ, we can submit our godly goals, our godly desires, and our identity to Him. So, my question for you guys is, where are you confusing goals and desires? Where are you letting your goals and your desires become the basis of your identity? And I pray that the Holy Spirit will really show us where we stumbled in letting our identity um, be derived from what we can achieve. Um, where sometimes we can't, what we are trying to achieve can't even be in our own hands. So, what does it look like when our identity 
doesn't rest in our goals, when it rests in who God calls us to be, who God created us to be. What if we accepted that sometimes our desires, when interrupted, they actually might lead us to where God is really taking us? Let's go down to our, um, our next passage here. Uh, in Acts 16, we see Paul as he's on one of his missionary journeys, and he has a desire to preach the gospel. Good, godly desire, right? But we see there's a roadblock here. We read from uh, verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen this vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we see Paul, he has this godly desire. He has the desire to preach the gospel in this province of Asia, in this uh, city of Bithynia. This is modern day Turkey, that area. But the very Spirit of God is blocking him, is preventing him from going in there. Now, if he was drawing his identity from how well he achieves his goals, he'd be angry, he'd be upset, he'd be anxious, he'd be depressed. Oh, God is not letting me do what I'm supposed to do. This is, you know, totally ruining my identity. But Paul was secure in his identity as someone who is saved by Christ, someone who is in relationship with Christ. So this desire, not goal, this desire, it's a minor inconvenience, and he just carries on and follows what God ends up leading him to. Again, this is something that Anderson talks about, how we can respond to those block goals and those desires. And if we can put that quote up here. Anderson writes that trials and tribulations reveal wrong goals, but they can actually be catalysts for achieving God's goals in our lives, which is sanctification. During stressful times, our emotions raise their warning flags, signaling blocked, uncertain, or impossible goals that are based on our desires instead of God's goal of proven character. See, our identity needs to be based on who God sees us as, who God is calling us to be, what we call sanctification, growing as that child of God, that son or daughter of God, into who God has called us to be. And we see this with Paul. He wanted, he waited on God's leading. God provided that leading. He ended up going into the city of Philippi. He ended up meeting a believer named Lydia, who would be the first person baptized in that city. And it was from her house, her entire household being baptized, that the entire church of Philippi started right there. All because Paul was not worried about his identity being blocked by certain goals, by failing in certain goals, but by being led by God's Spirit. And because Paul didn't let his goals become his identity, God was able to make something amazing happen. And it's actually to the church in Philippi that Paul would write a letter that I think kind of explains why he was able to live this way, why he was able to let his goals and his desires go in favor of what God 
was doing. Let's put this one last piece of scripture. I promise this is the last piece of scripture that we're going to read today. So Paul writes to the churches uh, uh, of Philippi, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks I have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. This is what Paul did. Paul, when he saw a roadblock, trusted in who he was, what his identity was as a follower of Christ, that he knew Christ, that that was the most important thing in his identity, to know and be known by Christ. So that whenever something happened that messed up with his goals or desires, he could continue on, not suffering in his identity, not having that all messed up, but instead just knowing that his identity was assured in Christ. And that whatever goals, whatever purposes, whatever way God had to prosper Paul, he could rely on Christ to find that for him. So this is my, my second point up here, where we should actually have our goals. We can put that up. There we go. Our goal should always be to be to be found in Christ, where our identity really lies. Paul's identity, his everything, was found in Christ. Not his goals, not his past, not his past accolades, not all the good things that he had in the past or even in the present. But it was in his identity in Christ. It was because he could that let him let all his desires fade away in favor of God's goals. Now, we can't obtain our identity from goals that may be impossible to achieve or desires that may fall short. But in knowing our identity in Christ, in finding our identity in him and who he calls us to be, we can actually live in his goals that may be infinitely better than anything that we could set for ourselves. And when our goals are aligned with God's goals, we know that he does not fail in his goals. When we're on the same path that he's on, we know that the victory is assured in him. It may sometimes take a different view than we expect. It may look different than we may think it should, but we can rest in knowing that his goals are always achieved. And when our identity is in him, it is secure. It's not subject to things that can fall through. So my question for you guys is, are you willing to let God speak his identity over you? to let his goals be your goals, trading all that we think might be good for God's plan to prosper us, to prosper us, to give us hope and to give us a future. That is my question for you guys today. So if you guys would stand and pray with me today. Heavenly Father, I thank you that our identity is not hinged upon our goals or our desires or things that we cannot control, but our identity is instead 
secure in who we are in you. I pray, God, that as we go from here this week, you would speak to us in what your will is for our lives, in the places where we have lost our way, where we have set goals that are not aligned with you, and you would refocus us on who you've called us to be and how you've called us to live and the goals that you have for us in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. People who live in New York don't struggle with identity. They struggle with identity all the time. It's not just, I don't know, I wouldn't even use the word struggle. I would use the word obsession. You're here to prove your identity. Somewhere along the way, people applied to schools like Columbia and NYU and others to distinguish themselves from others' identities. Some people go as far as to sue places like Harvard for not accepting them because they had a perfect SAT score or they had the perfect resume. They even published a book that was a bestseller and they just can't understand and grapple with why they were rejected. When someone is obsessed and desperate to attain something or even consume something, it's not about goals and desires anymore, right? Those are just the manifestations. The root is identity. I'm suing you because you took my identity. In premarital, or when someone comes to me about a relationship advice about the opposite sex, and they're like, I need... I need her in my life. I am desperate. And I go, well, she can't be your partner then. Why not? I will follow God with all my heart if God gives me this. I said, see, you're, you're not even balanced. She's not a partner. She's a goddess. And let me just tell you, there are no goddess. Once you're in a relationship, they're very human. Streck is actually the realistic idea of real partnership. Watch it. It'll help you navigate through the reality of what humans really are beneath the surface. Ogres. Disgusting ogres. Every human is flawed. Every human is ugly. And if you think they're a goddess, the hatred is going to grow. Because you'd be like, man, I was swindled. And you paid a lot of money for that diamond. If you're desperate, and, and that's why there are certain men that want a trophy of a woman because it, it, it valid, it's not even about the woman. It's actually very selfish. It's about validation of self. See, I got someone like that. Oh, so you were marrying an ogre, proposing to one. And, and so... Neil Anderson and what Stu was expounding on, I think it's critical to think through as a community. I mean, these, these conversations can go for a very long time because what are you desperate about in your life? What is something that you won't listen to anyone or anything 
because you want it so bad and you think it's about ambition, but it's really about identity. Who are you trying to prove yourself to? The maladaptive ways we cope in life is a result of those intrinsic desires and goals that we think will validate us to the imaginary people in the world that are experiencing the exact same thing. So today, will you come before the Lord with me, your father? And the Bible pictures God as Abba Father. Some of us had imperfect fathers. But in the end, psychotherapy, all counseling goes back to a paternal figure and the needs we need to be loved in the environment in which we're embedded. That's what really therapy is about in the end of the day. The distortions are imputed because we haven't been loved or our needs haven't been met. When my kids rebel or don't listen or fail, I don't look at them as failures. When they're lost, I don't call out their accomplishments. I call them by their name. Because that's what is inherently valuable to me, who they are to me in relation to me. God does the same. He calls us by name. We're either lost or found. He doesn't count scores. So let's make this our prayer. Will you lift your hands will be to the Lord today and receive, which might be uncomfortable. I was at a book party release, which I didn't ask for because it was really uncomfortable. And I was talking to Andrew Lee on the way, picking up a burger because we're both fat sometimes. And <clears throat> after actually eating a lot of barbecue and he was saying, I, we, I've learned to celebrate here at 180. I'm like, yeah, I know. I like to celebrate others. I just don't like to be celebrated. He goes, well, I like you being uncomfortable about that because you make us uncomfortable. I want to make you uncomfortable. And in New York, and many of you who are very, very ambitious, very, very perfectionist, if you had a reason for why you need the gospel, why you need perfect love that casts out fear, you don't mind doing overachieving for others or giving to others, but what about you? You need to be loved for who you are. That's what sets you free. All your neurotic tendencies, all our neuroses are slowly healed and restored and we become healthy and we flourish when we're loved in relation to who we really are. And Henry Nouwen says that the greatest enemy of the spiritual life is any voice that says that we're not the beloved. So today I want to pray for all of us, including myself, as we receive the love and the identity as the beloved. That's what our identity in Christ is, to be the beloved. Father, we want to pray together as a community 
And we confess our fears and our anxieties in comparison to others. Some people get married earlier. Some people achieve more earlier. Some people have this and that earlier or later. And many times it does affect and impact our identity and how we see ourselves, how we measure up in this world. But Father, your voice tells us that our performance does not determine our being. Our doing does not determine our being. But who we are to you, a son or a daughter, I have a father. Let's receive this love from God. Have a maker. I have a maker. He called my heart before even time began. Before even time began, our life was He knows my name. He knows my every thought. And he Remember the parable of the ogres, Shrek itself. God, when he sees us, he already sees us for who we are. He actually sees in totality, beyond space and time, what we will accomplish and what we won't. But he loves us just the same and wants to be in relationship with us. 
If he didn't want to be in relationship with us, you would not have been created. Because he's stuck with you for eternity. You imagine that, right? I wouldn't want to be stuck with someone with eternity if I don't want to know them. But in all our flaws, which are prisms of delight to God, all the quirks, just like when I see my children, some of their jokes are sadistic and evil, but it makes me laugh. And it colors their personalities. And when God the Father sees through time and space and sees your life and who you become, he delights. And I pray that that immutable truth, and, and this is a chronic problem, folks. I mean, it's going to be, for us in New York, chronic problem. We'll come back to the Father's love. Amen? Will you probably bow your heads for the benediction? So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.